the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. It is what it is. Lately I've found myself taking notice of that saying. How frequently I hear it, and more frequently how often I say it. The more I've noted it, the more I've begun to ask, what exactly do I mean by it? Disconcertingly, I've found that my most regular use of it is what it is means something like, nothing to be done. Let it be. But this is kind of a horrifyingly conclusive thing to say about anything, if we really think about it. I might as well say, there's nothing more to see here. There's no more potential for this thing. Or, if I'm being honest, I can't be troubled to find any more meaning in this thing because it's too tedious, too laborious, too painful, too aggravating, or too disheartening. And this is how we find the figures in our gospel lesson. The condition of a leper in first century Israel under Levitical law gave one the approximate status of a corpse. In fact, similar principles applied to both of them, leveling a similar communicable stigma, applying to those who dared to come too close, those who touched either. To be a leper was a kind of death, a radical disruption to the patterns of the familiar, an exile from one's family and an exile from one's people. Forced to the fringes, lepers had to leave behind their previous lives to embrace whatever small community they had left to them. Their condition now eclipsing all other relevant personal details and summarized in their collective and all-encompassing identity expressed in the far cry of, stay back, I am unclean. We learned in last week's gospel lesson of the Good Samaritan what is the typical response to those who present the problem of uncleanness. The priest and the Levite in that parable pass by what they think is a dead man for fear on their way to Jerusalem that they might come into contact with what to all appearances is a dead body and so to avoid being unclean. One might expect in the case of these ten lepers that this rabbi on his way to Jerusalem passing through this no man's land of Galilee and Samaria might have the same response and stay away. But the gospel says that Christ sees the lepers. The word here for see means something much, much more than just looked at. It means to behold. Christ embraces them with his searching eyes. And he knows them. His eyes do not falter. They do not become distracted at the surface of their diseased skin. And he moves past that to find them out and to know them to the core, to Christ. These lepers are more than what they seem to be. 
for to Christ all are as they truly are. And it is out of this knowledge that Christ speaks his strange command that they go and show themselves to the priest. And it's strange because having been already declared unclean by the same priests, there would have been no point in returning to them unless there was some obvious evidence to point to that they'd been cured of their affliction. That affliction, in fact, brought them to Jesus in the first place, and now he's sending them away to a place they know would be futile to return currently as they are. But Christ is speaking in the knowledge of their healing and speaking of it in a way as a deeper matter than just what's on the surface. Something they cannot see themselves, but something that he knows is there. And so comes a moment of decision for them. Obey the command, despite the apparent futility of it. Or brush off that command as absurd and go on their way, disappointed. The rules are the rules, after all. It is what it is. But maybe not. In their obedience to the word of Christ is their cleansing. All ten lepers are made whole. A miraculous sign has been worked. But this is not the end of the story. One out of the ten, a Samaritan, a stranger, a foreigner, an outsider, returns to Christ. The other nine go on their way. Go on their way to the priests to be declared clean, to get back to a normal life with a clean bill of health and a restored social status. But the Samaritan perhaps has a sense that that was never enough to begin with. Has a sense that there's something here that's worthy of replacing what was left behind to enter into uncleanness. The stranger, the one outside of God's chosen people, is the only one who turns back to give thanks to God. The astonishment of our Lord at this fact emphasizes how incomplete is the behavior of the other nine. This man completes the story by offering the only thing that can be offered in the response to a gift, and that is gratitude. Face to face with the God who makes whole, with Christ who sees him as he really is, all the difference in the world is found in this gratitude that turns, having been seen, to see Christ as he is and to give thanks. This encounter on the Jerusalem road makes us able then to understand the epistle lesson more clearly, for it's about two different ways of seeing, two different ways of living. For St. Paul, these are what he terms the flesh on one hand and the spirit on the other. The flesh sees things in an it-is-what-it-is kind of way, from the closed perspective, that only attends to what is most obvious, what is most tangible or sensible, and then orders a way of living all around just those things, merely those things. For St. Paul, it falls short of a wider vision, a vision informed by faith or a trusting knowledge of what is beyond the most obvious, what is beyond the apparent. This knowledge, though, is a gift of the Spirit, 
by which the darkened glass of natural wisdom becomes enlightened and set afire by God, who becomes manifest to us by the Spirit coming alongside of us to reveal him to us. The Spirit shows us beyond the veil of this world all the light that we cannot see unaided. The gift of the Spirit is the capacity to live in faith, a confident obedience in God's unseen reality. The Spirit's gift forms our hope, an eager expectation, and a formed patience, an anchored patience, that that reality will become manifest. And the Spirit's gift is a vital life of love, which is the manifest life of God, the eternal life of God that comes to indwell our hope-oriented faith. And so when we see them together, faith, hope, and love, these are the virtues, these are the pathways by which we finally arrive to live in the world that, as God knows it to be and declares it to be and promises it to be. And so this morning we behold the faith, hope, and love of a stranger. A stranger in the gospel. So that as strangers ourselves, we may awaken to the knowledge that Christ the King who sees us as we really are, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. That this is also Christ our Savior, who in the breaking of the bread of Eucharist, invites us to find him, to see him by love in a hope-directed faith. For we are those who are invited to come, to see and to know, to know him in the bread and wine that are his very body and very blood. And as our flesh dissolves, we come to the altar admitting ourselves unclean. And as we do, so much the more does he make us clean and whole, for his blood makes us clean, and his flesh comes to dwell among our flesh until at last we become all at once all that Christ is because he became all that we are. So let us then, this morning, through faith, hope, and love, look and see and know the world around the world, that great day of resurrection beneath and in and through the fleeting, faltering flesh of this world. For more truly than all other things, it is what it is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.